HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today with Adina Sussman and Raquel Pilzel, um, talking about recipes, testing, development, how they end up in cookbooks, how they are cooked, so much. But a little background, Raquel and I are actually uh, ships passing in the night, it mm-hmm. almost seems, um, having cooked in Boston. Uh, at Number 9 Park, and then going to Cook's Illustrated, kind of at the same time that I was there. And then he introduced me to Adina, uh, a good friend of hers, and a recipe tester developer, uh, cookbook maven for Ellie Krieger uh, Food Network, and a ton of her own work as well. Yes. Um, thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. Thanks for being here. Um, I think I kind of just want to start with a little bit of background, uh, you know, where you got your chops per se uh Raquel it says that you were from Chicago yeah 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 I was in Chicago and um 
I guess I got into food at a at a food internship. I was an advertising major, and I kind of started hanging out with the chef more than I should have been. This <laughs> isn't the case probably with a lot of us. Um, and I was a vegetarian at the time, so I went to a cooking school out in Colorado oh, in yeah? a church basement. So, yeah. so no yeah. like Italian hot roast beefs or oh no, yeah. oh no, it Chicago was like all seitan all the way, yeah. man. And <laughs> um, went out there for a while, and then. Um, I got hired at a bunch of different bakeries in Chicago when I came home, but I was too scared to take any of the jobs because, you know, it was like the mid-90s, I guess, yeah. and it was it was a scary thing to, to drop everything and, and go into cooking and make $5 an hour and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I kept on working in publishing uh, for a while, and then, and then I ended up out in Boston where um, I went to pastry school down Johnson and Wales and then um, you know I would do this crazy commute every day and I was working in a bakery at that time and I kind of took the plunge and um, and then ended up at Cook's and then moved down to Brooklyn and, and freelanced so that's that's my story yeah have you ever <laughs> have you ever surmised your your culinary career that quickly I don't before? think so yeah. <laughs> well done well yeah. done and Adina um, your background I, I noted that you grew up in a traditional Jewish yes, home. Yes, I grew up in a very food-centric uh, Orthodox Jewish home, so home cooking was a big part of our tradition. My mom worked full-time, so she had my sister and I very involved in the cooking, cleaning chickens and making challah bread and things like that at a very young age. So I'd say I had a high comfort level in the kitchen with a very, what I'd say, Hamish or home-style cooking. <laughs> but um, as my love of food increased I would say that my religious observance waned (laughs) Um, although I really did sort of rediscover my passion for cooking and food when I lived in Israel for five years after college and sort of got into a green marketing type of a culture of cooking more seasonal something that I never really was aware of in college or until after I moved abroad and I came back and eventually through a variety of circumstances worked at Gourmet Magazine for three years. Oh, excellent. Doing um, what? I was the chief copywriter for the publishing side of the magazine so I wrote all of the special sections for advertisers and did a lot of writing about wine and produced events for wine clients yeah, around the country. Yeah, wander down to the test kitchen every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Try, scrounging for, uh, for leftovers. Yeah. Um, but then I eventually um, while I was at Gourmet, I worked in a couple of restaurants, including Beacon with Waldi Malib as a stagiaire. He just took me on. Um, And then I went to culinary school uh, at ICE in 2004 and 5, and I've been working as a freelancer, recipe developing and testing and writing uh, since 2005. Yeah. It's funny, um, more so with uh, Adina, that you you had your, you know, kitchen uh, sense. And you went and followed uh, that to Israel, you know, having the Orthodox Jewish. But uh, whereas you kind of just (laughs) fled the whole Chicago scene and went to Colorado. Why why did you need that transition? Um, Well, pretty much because I could stay there for free. (laughs) That was the big... I mean, you know, I was a vegetarian at the time and I really wasn't willing to... um, I guess I wanted to go to cooking school, but, you know, where could I go where I could cook and not have to use meat? That was my Mm, primary focus Mm -hmm. at the time. Um, And it was either in New York or Colorado, right outside in Boulder, actually. And my cousin and his wife lived in Boulder, and I knew no one in New York. So I was like, well, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) I got in my pickup truck and drove out there and um not only was it a vegetarian cooking cooking class but someone was allergic to garlic <laughs> and there were vegans yeah. so it was like no garlic and vegan and it was it was kind yeah. of insane but 
you know, I really learned a really strong foundation for um, how to develop flavor, not using meat and yeah. using spices. And I think that word is an amazing one, foundation. And yeah. that, you know, sometimes if you eliminate all the pomp and circumstance mm-hmm. of having, you know, this plethora of ingredients and mm-hmm. equipment that... You know, and just focus, yeah. uh, you become that much better chef and taster. I think so. And I think if you look at both of our backgrounds, even though our the breadth and scope of our work has expanded, the sort of where we got our start definitely informs the kind of work that we do or like to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, my yeah. favorite style of cooking is still home cooking that's you know very soulful yeah yeah you know, whether and raquel's you know i've been under, i was an admirer of her work long before i met her oh. but um <laughs> and became friends with her but i think similar i didn't actually know some of that stuff but i can see that background reflected in, in yeah. your work yeah so and then why israel other than you know birthright and uh, <laughs> actually I, I was birthright started long yeah. after i was eligible for uh the age but um I was looking for an adventure and I was a journalism major and I just went over there without a job. The other, the other option was moving to New York. I went to school in Boston. Um, and uh, I just, uh, I had spent a lot of time there and was interested in traveling around the Middle East and Europe. So, um, and I worked in TV actually. So I was a communications major in college and I worked as a TV producer and and I spoke fluent Hebrew because of my education from growing up. So I had a little bit of an advantage. Um, and it was a great experience. It was also a very peaceful time there. So um, there was a lot of openness. I went to Jordan and Turkey, Morocco, and, you know, and really had great experiences, um, both, I'd say actually less culinarily at the time because I yeah. was still kosher. <laughs> um, but you did mention green market when you were over yes. there. Was that like a prolific thing? That um, Yeah. Um, there, the, the shuk or the, the market, you know, the same as the Arab word for souk, was, is a big part of Israeli culture. And um, I think unwittingly you just end up going once or twice a week because it's a real uh, cultural touchstone there. Everyone goes mm-hmm. to the market. And it's a little bit less of sort of the uh, sort of precious green market mm-hmm. image that Americans have. It's, it's really just a, part just of a life. bustling part yeah. of life yeah. where people go to get, they, they go there and get their chicken butchered yeah. as much as they pick up their, their vegetables. So mm-hmm. yeah. I think unconsciously it informed my knowledge of food. And when I came back and really made a decision that I wanted to work in the food world, it all sort of that, that background and, and knowledge sort of coalesced and did inform what I did a little bit. Mm-hmm. But partly it was just a lark. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's great, though. I think a lot of people use larks as this transitory way of ending up where they want to be. If you look at all of us in the food industry, I think most of us didn't realize we didn't we didn't we weren't born thinking at age five. This is where we wanted to end up. Yeah. 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 And we'll still, we're still scratching our heads. How did we get yeah. here? Especially yeah, now. Very, very David <laughs> right? Byrne talking changing. heads. Yeah. Um, but, you know, from those beginnings and those travels, uh, you come back and you're both in greater New York City. Um, how do you see that differ from, you know, those travels, your home kitchens? What do you see happening here now? Uh, there's green market forward, obviously, farm to table, etc. Um, is it similar to the kind of cooking that you hoped to be a part of or for me it's more about um the stories behind the food and i think that when you get into food writing and working on cookbooks and writing head notes and helping chefs kind of bring their vision to the page and um the whole process of writing a cookbook or writing a story about food um getting those stories that are so special and unique to a person is what 
I mean, if I can find any project that does that, I don't care if it's local, seasonal, you know, vegetarian, um, food personality, you know, yeah. celebrity chef. It doesn't matter because it's all about, I think, what connects us. I mean, what connects us and what connects everyone to food is those special stories that, um, I don't know, about grandma's whatever. And it's like, you know, everyone can connect to that. I yeah. mean, everyone can connect to yeah, those tasty I, things. Yeah, and I think that because of the kind the nature of work that we do, we both end up being the messenger for someone else's vision and message. Mm-hmm. So I think that you have to be passionate and sort of feel the projects that are most successful are ones where you do feel a parody totally. with the person and what yeah. they're doing. But does it ever feel kind of disparate like you're a surrogate and it's not really your voice or your message actually being delivered? Or does it Sometimes. feel like your work as well? Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, some you know, I, th- I think it's our job to kind of... Um, you're almost like... A, a translator, ghost writer, kind of, I don't know, for me at least, I start talking to these chefs in my head. You know, we have these make-believe conversations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, because, you know, you kind of have to really get on with their voice. You have to figure out, well, what would so-and-so say about this dish or about this vegetable? Or how do I think they would approach talking about this recipe? And, of course, you talk to the person whose recipe it is. Um, but, you know, you also kind of have to... And it takes a while to figure that out, yeah. the speech patterns and how they you know, go about it. Yeah, you, you have to sort of be able... It's, I think part of the work that Raquel has done so successfully is you have to, um, you have to be a good, uh, very perceptive about someone's personality and what they're trying to convey. Because a lot of times people have a difficult time conveying their own message mm-hmm. and you have to help them crystallize it and distill it. So only when you get involved in the process and sort of extract the information from them and then take it home and try and put it out on the page does it come out. Sometimes they, I think, say, wow, I can't believe, how did you get that? Because yeah, I don't even yeah. realize that I said that. Yeah. So I think there's a certain amount of, it's a certain amount of sorcery involved yeah, yeah. and guesswork, but it's also just really about being a good listener yeah. um, and combined with great culinary knowledge as yeah. well. Do you think that's why, you know, front of the house is the person servicing the customer and talking to them because mm-hmm. they're relaying that information do you ever feel like a gm do you ever feel like you <laughs> I've know never thought of uh, it that way um i think you're both front and back of the house with yeah, what we do. yeah yeah you know we're, we're the hostesses with the most right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's uh, i mean and, and you know i think passion is key um and it's always difficult when you're working with a chef or a food personality i'm sure adina has gone this through this too when they just hesitate to really open up and and I think that's a whole, ha- you know, I'm sure, I don't know what the numbers would be, but I'm sure so many people read a cookbook just to get inspired and just mm-hmm. to have fun reading it and his bedside table reading and, and not necessarily bringing it in the kitchen to cook with it. Um, so you kind of have to believe that people are going to be interested in the weird little details of your life. Yeah. But, you know, it is. I mean, it's also, and these, these, these chefs are very attached and passionate about their recipes so i mean think of it it's like akin to an an artist asking another artist to repaint their paintings Mm -hmm. in a book you know i'm not and how much paint did you put on there exactly (laughs) and and, you know and sort of they there's that moment where they haven't really they haven't decided whether they trust you yet yeah yeah (laughs) and it's totally natural and something you have to live with and accept Uh, for a while until the the relationship changes or there's like a transference of some sort i feel that same way going into kitchens and photographing that you know i have to prove to them that i understand it's their space Mm -hmm. but i don't want to be servile you know that right. you have to right. work together and right. it, it's, it's a hard thing to mm-hmm. be like you know we're, we're symbiotic we're not like i'm not a parasite here uh, yeah so but yeah gaining that trust is something just by you know going there over and over and showing that you're in passion mm-hmm. and care about it too but it's, yeah it's sometimes as strenuous as you know 
whatever they're doing. And right. Yeah. So uh, I've always found that fascinating. You know that you're not this secondary, tertiary job. You are, you know, just as important. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think, and I think that they, you know, there's a big difference between a chef-driven recipe and a, a recipe that someone's going to make at home and once they realize that you're bringing something to the table also from a food perspective that's mm-hmm. different than from and then and they appreciate that and th- that you're helping to sort of convey their message in a way right. you know and clarifying things you know making things more accessible to home cooks simplifying techniques all that stuff yeah. that you know is obviously not in their purview for yeah. whatever reason yeah. or it's just not the way they think just logistically they're thinking of uh, their restaurant mm-hmm. kitchen more yeah, so than sure. cooking at home yeah um, sous chefs and dishwashers and you know, yeah yeah most yeah. Normal people don't have that so yeah you know. exactly right someone should write a cookbook with dishwashers and sous chefs and you know <laughs> actually write a cookbook <laughs> for a restaurant yeah so like right you don't write have your prep cook chop five <laughs> five yeah. pounds of onions yeah. for you right <laughs> Call up the distributor and make sure the fish is getting there on time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, transitioning into cookbooks themselves, uh, Adina, you've worked with Ellie uh, for yeah. quite some time. Um, mm-hmm. How did you originally get that introduction? Um, like most relationships, it came very randomly. Uh, actually, a good friend of mine from Gourmet, um, Jackie Torin, who was Sarah Moulton's sous chef in the Gourmet um, kitchen, she knew Ellie, but only because they had interned at CNN together as teenagers. So it, was, it wasn't actually a food connection. And she connected us back in 2006 when Ellie was just sort of starting to become well-known. And she had a show on the Food Network. And um, we lived near one another. And we sort of hit it off personality-wise. And um, I really came to, to it with a lot of humility because it was she gave me a big opportunity. So I think she saw that I was really open to learning and... Um, <coughs> working with her and collaborating. So, um, you know, I did, so I did about 20 recipes for the first book. And when I say did, I mean, I don't like to, I don't want to take away from her participation because it's not like she just sort of says, okay, you go ahead and develop this and I'm going to put my name on it. It is a very collaborative process and there's a lot of discussion about each recipe. Um, but you know, we just sort of built trust through, I would say not success, but through over time, like horizontally. And I've now worked on three books with her and I do other projects with her as well. And we brainstorm together. So yeah, it's been a nice relationship and opened a lot of doors for me. Yeah. So. I, I kind of like, uh, that you have that humility of initially meeting her and yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was, um, um, unlike Raquel's been doing it longer than I have actually and um also with ellie my the relationship is purely a food and to this day ellie does her own writing for the book so i'm i'm hopefully now getting into i can't discuss yet with whom hopefully going to be co-writing books the way that raquel does but until now my participation in books has been purely recipe driven yeah so and and that was also great for me a great education professionally and i i love it i still love doing that yeah 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 and then your first book was it um two dudes one pan no, um, oh, long before that. Oh, yeah. Gosh, um, the first book that I ever worked on, the first cookbook I worked on was um, called "The Quick Recipe." It was for Cooks Illustrated, yeah. and it actually won a James Beard Award. And um, I, Yay. yeah, it was very <laughs> exciting. Um, I uh, I worked on all of the dessert recipes for that, and then I wrote the yeah. um, the chapters for for that book. Um, for the dessert section, yeah. there are three or four chapters of desserts, and then um, and then my first kind of full on collaboration project was with um, Severe Saran, who is just on Top Chef Masters. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he has Davy on yeah. 18th Street. He's a great guy and an amazing cook. And um, 
an amazing person. And we met during the blackout in 2003 because <laughs> we were neighbors. So, yeah. you know, these things kind of happen That's randomly, yeah. I guess. Yeah. They always do. Yeah. So, yeah, randomly, um, uh, my first introduction to, I've been shooting this back of the house project about the lives of chefs in yeah. the kitchens. I remembered like a week ago, I, ran, I saw Ken Oranger. He uh-huh. was a chef at Cleo in Boston. And it was one of the first two kitchens, that number nine park yeah. that I was in. That my dad is a very chatty Kathy. He um, <laughs> met this guy who happened to be Ken's twin brother and oh. told him what I was trying to do. And he's like, oh, just have him call up my brother. And that was it. It's my, amazing, Yeah, right? my dad met him while the guy was getting fitted for glasses That's at right. a mall in Westchester. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think in more cases than not, that something like that is the... Mm-hmm is this yeah yeah but it's amazing that you know people think there's this protocol in getting into these professions and jobs Mm -hmm. and really it's just what what is it dr john right place right time yeah Yeah. i mean it's also you know not feeling that you're above taking any assignment i mean you take because you never know like something that you make 50 bucks from could lead you to meeting someone Mm -hmm. or um it's all about just being open and receptive i think to everything because um yeah, that's, that's where the interesting projects yeah. come from, these random kind of... And know. there are a lot of us doing this, uh-huh. um, but I think that the, the people that I've experienced who are most successful are able to go with the flow. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. have to be, just be able to, you know, if, to, if you're dealing with a lot of personalities and a lot of different kinds of people and trying to understand a lot of different perspectives. So it's... Uh, it's fun. It's being a little bit of a soothsayer for someone else, you know. <laughs> On that note, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about some of the other personalities you two have worked with. <laughs> um, you've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back. Public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune in to Greenhorn Radio, hosted by Severin von Scharner Fleming, every Thursday at 2 p.m. Greenhorn Radio is radio for young farmers by young farmers. Helmed by acclaimed activist, farmer, and documentarian Severin Fleming, Greenhorn Radio is a weekly phone interview session surveying America's cutting edge under 40 farmers. Again, that's every Thursday at 2 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. 
Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Adina Sussman and Raquel Pazell, uh, recipe testers, developers, cookbook writers, excellent cooks. <laughs> Got to All that. of these. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can't be a cookbook tester, developer, writer, and not be a good cook. You can't just have the you know uh, side of the brain that can put it together without it having you know taste good right totally yeah, yeah yeah you have to love you have to love getting in there and getting dirty yeah 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 i think it comes from it the, the, it comes from a passion for cooking all of this yeah when you get back to it so yeah and home cooking at home yeah how often do you actually cook at home um five six nights a week yeah, yeah. i have two kids so yeah. yeah we go through a lot of food <laughs> yeah and i am single and have no kids but i'd say um i cook recreationally two three times a week but by dint of what I do, there's something that I've made in the fridge almost every day. Yeah. I and mean, we're so. often in the kitchen cooking all day, too. I mean, yeah. sometimes you can, you know, work on five recipes in a day. Exactly. And, and even though, you know, you still might be cooking dinner at night, you've been cooking all day, but that was work. So yeah. Different, and there, you know. And there is, I think we've talked about this, there's a strong desire to sort of cook something different than what you were cooking for work. Mm-hmm. Because they, while some things are appetizing and delicious, it at the end of the day, it, it feels there some of it is work and there it, you have to keep your passion for cooking going. You have to cook the things you want to make yeah. with ingredients that you crave and that you love, you know. So how, how often do you befall the, the, the rote thing of like, oh, I'm doing chicken casserole again or I'm doing just bread all the time? Have there been like cookbooks or assignments where you just got sick of the singular object that you've been oh. cooking? Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm working on, um, I'm actually I'm working on a great assignment for the American Lamb Board right now. Yeah. And it's really fantastic and fun and great, but I'm eating a lot of <laughs> lamb. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of lamb. And I just developed um, 20 recipes for Dr. Prager's vegetarian pancakes <laughs> um, <laughs> and how to use them in recipes as an ingredient as opposed to just as sort of a, yeah. a oh, pancake. That's interesting. And they were very pleased with the recipes, um, but. I got to tell you, there were there was there were a couple of months there where um, you know it was it was a lot of recipes and I was really trying to perfect them and I you know I would puree the they're an Indian style pancake mm-hmm. and I yeah. used it as the base for a coconut curry actually because mm, it had yeah. all the seasonings oh. in it and and it yeah. had whole peas it, it worked very nicely but curry there was like a month after that where I just couldn't look at a curry yeah, <laughs> yeah. you start sweating yeah emitting curry yeah, yeah. but it, but I was happy with the yeah. result yeah uh, so from singular you know subjects to you know, singular subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really do want to talk about the, the two dudes, one pan, uh-huh. because we'll get back to severe. Um, but I, I think you hit on them before all this exemplary mm-hmm. fame came. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and you said, you know, humanistic story. Is uh-huh. that the route that you found them? I got hooked up with John and Vinny through um, our cookbook editor, Pam Krause, yeah. who um, was at Clarkson Potter and now is at Rodale. And she's pretty amazing. And, um, She's and that's John Shook and Vinny, Vinny Joe from yeah, Animal. Animal. Yeah, from Animal, Animal out in LA. Yeah. And now they have Son of a Gun, their <laughs> yeah. second restaurant. Yeah. And they're just great guys. I mean, they're hysterical. Like, So I was meeting them for the first time, and um, they flew me out to LA. And, because, you know, I mean, I was in Brooklyn, they're mm-hmm. in LA, and we're trying to write this cookbook together. And I got to get their voice, and I got to get what they're all about. And, um, you know, two young guys. And um, at that time, they didn't have a restaurant yet. And they were working out of their bungalow in Los Feliz and, um, you know, their catering company. And I get off the plane and Johnny's there to meet me. And he's got like this long, crazy, really curly hair. (laughs) And he's like, Raquel, it's great to meet you. We got to go get a washing machine. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So we go to like some super saver discount store. You know, we pick out a washing machine, take it to the house. Like, you know, and, and but. 
Um, the great thing is, is a lot of people love that cookbook because they really feel like John and Vinny are there, like they're talking yeah. to them. And I think that's when you really write something that's successful because you feel like the chefs are there talking to you and it's in their voice and you get yeah. their kind of vibe from it. So how much time did you actually spend with them while out in L.A.? Uh, I was with them for five days. Yeah. So, five, you know, I stayed in a hotel, but I was with them, you know, morning till night every day for five days and hanging out and eating and um, talking. And, you know, they're both very different people. So it was great to get a sense of who they are. Because so often they, John and Vinny get kind of lumped into John and Vinny. You know, yeah. they, they don't get, they're, they're each their own person with their own interests and beliefs and ways of cooking and styles. Um, did so, you write the book? As a we from a we, or was it John and Vinny each had their own sort yeah, of? Yeah, we voice? wrote it. Yeah, we, it was almost like um, a conversation. Yeah, so that's cool. yeah, it was fun because um, otherwise I didn't want to lump them into one personality. So um, yeah, they kind of you know we had a John and then a Vinny quote. And yeah, then, you know, <laughs> it was um, it was fun. It was fun, and uh, we ate a lot of food, a lot of good food. And the perks, yeah, the yeah. wonderful perks, and then Suvir um, uh-huh. meeting him during the blackout. And you being neighbors, uh-huh. often were you going over to his house to cook, him coming to yours? Well, we knew each other for a couple of years yeah. before we even started working on a book. Because his first book, Indian Home Cooking, came out right when I had met him. Um, that He wrote that with Stephanie Linus. Yeah, and you worked on American Masala. Exactly, yes. American Masala. And then we have our third book, or my second book with him, but yeah. his third book's coming out in uh, September, and it's called Masala Farm. Yeah, he has this farm upstate. Chronicle, yes? Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a beautiful book. It's about kind of his life up at the farm. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, we knew each other for a while before we um, worked on a book together, and which was great because I kind of know I can take you know I can take what he says and kind of finesse it or play with it and mold it into what it needs to say for the recipe without losing him in it, and I think that only comes from really getting to know someone really well. Yeah. Um, and talking with them a lot. So, do you do you see like a standardization of techniques uh, by talking to you know Vinny and Ellie and Suvir, or is it just so across the board? Like because Cooking they're yeah yeah. Or, what do you think? I mean, I, I you know, I always ask even when I'm starting to when I'm starting to work with someone, I always ask even the most simple questions yeah. like. It, you know, and this happened with John and Vinny. I kept asking like, do you want to put pepper in that? They don't put pepper in mm, anything, yeah. and they're like. They're like, dude, how they say, dude, yeah. Yeah. pepper's a spice. It, it makes things spicy, yeah. and we don't like spicy food, and we use pepper really rarely. And yeah. so even those really small things that you might miss, if I just kind of blew it off and say, oh, I'm just going to put pepper, you know, salt and pepper to yeah. taste, salt and pepper. You really yeah. have to, you know, it's it's part of who they are and what they do. I think when you first get to know a chef, there are, you know, there there's only, there are certain ways culinary ways to do things that are proper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. Like, make a bechamel a certain way or, you know, caramelized an onion that's fine but it is important to sort of understand how people cook because some chefs like to use more oil some mm-hmm. like to use less some like to grate their ginger on the microplane some like to do it by hand and those are all the little things that actually do sort of make a difference right and the final product and also do sort of help you get into the head of um your chef Le- yes yesterday i was um uh, on a photo shoot um i'm a food editor for manhattan magazine and we we're working on our restaurant issue so we were photographing some chefs and one of the chefs was talking about you know this is something i was thinking about like in the context of writing a book he said yes well i never let we never we would never use a bread machine I, the spirit of the bre- of the spirit of the bread comes through the hands yeah. so, like oh, things like that nice thing. yeah. yeah you know yeah. The, it's those kind of things that really help you develop 
an idea of someone's personality mm-hmm. and perspective, you know, what mm-hmm. they're about. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know people that won't use a microplane because they'd rather slice it with a knife. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you can get a different flavor. Yeah. 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 But the, the market also dictates because as Raquel can also attest, you know, quick and easy is mm-hmm. where things are really going mm-hmm. a lot of the time. So there, if there are certain time saving things, uh, sometimes yeah. the editor will, will request or that's just sort of the way things go, but you try and find a good balance. For yeah. That. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of technique, I wanted to get back to something we were talking before we went on air about mixing um, about <laughs> about you know you know what i'm talking about um about you know certain techniques that get yeah. lost in translation per uh-huh. se yeah. um and uh, that was a recipe that you were working on right Adina? raquel or, or was raquel talking was. about yeah, yeah. that yeah yeah. yeah yeah and uh, tell us a little about uh well <laughs> it's very funny so i was working on the cooks illustrate at the time and you know cooks recipes get tested out very analytically many many times before they make it into the magazine um and at that time 10 you know a decade ago um there are people from the office that were testing recipes and someone made one of the recipes and they said you know the recipe came out great and i think it was cookies or something you know they came out deli- they were delicious and soft and wonderful but you know it really would have worked better if i didn't have to use my hand to mix it and, and i actually was told to use a spoon to yeah. mix the dough and it's like oh yeah, you know. yeah. So it shows that there are no givens yeah totally. I, re- I had yeah. just recently had a really funny experience like that as well i um I edit, um, test and edit recipes for a magazine that is not um, a foodie magazine. Yeah. They include recipes. And the editors are lovely. And, you know, they make me feel like an uber expert because they know less, <laughs> yeah. you know. So um, the recipe was for a cut. It called for a cut up chicken. Okay. So the three of us, just a chicken cut into eighths yeah. is something that you can purchase in the store. So we, we had this really funny back and forth for two days about the cut up chicken. And she kept saying, can you just tell me how many thighs and breasts it is? And I just kept saying, well, you know, in theory, it's eight pieces and da, da, da. Basically, what she didn't realize is that you can purchase a chicken cut into eight pieces. And she's like, I just don't want people to have to do that at home. It seems a little bit involved, yeah. don't you think? And I was like, oh, OK. So I said, you know, you can actually buy a cut up chicken in any store. Yeah, yeah. She's like, oh, great. You <laughs> yeah. know, yeah. so just sort of. There's things get lost in I mean, other assumptions, too. You were talking about toasting coconut that yeah. You know, yeah. a lot of us take for granted. And some recipes will just say toasted right. coconut or, or toasted pine nuts or toasted or, nuts or yeah. fresh bread crumbs, uh-huh. yeah. you know, yeah. things like that. That some people are and understandably are foreign. And it's our right. job to make sure right. that people understand. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's just because of my awareness. But more and more often I see in cookbooks, you know, like it's using olfactory a lot now too mm-hmm. like a lot more senses are involved rather than this very you know uh, standardized way of do this for two minutes do this right. for two minutes yeah well, everyone's stove is you know everyone has a different stove mm-hmm. everyone considers you know what you consider medium high on someone else's mm-hmm. stove if they have like some crazy viking or you know super yeah. slick or a stove Whatever. like mine that just fluctuates or like, like the crazy. 200 yeah. exactly like the rental stove uh-huh. right. that we've all gone through um so I always try to give a visual and, you know, a, a, a smell, a visual, um, as well as a timing, because you never know what right. people are going to be, what they're going to be doing. And you don't want people to rely solely on time, too, because, every you know, your broiler, your broiler for four minutes could torch something. I mean, it could yeah. totally charge, you know, beyond recognition. So it's good to make sure yeah. people can keep a sense of that. That happened to me, actually. Um, I was working on a food styling set for the South Beach Food and Wine Festival cookbook. I was the food styling assistant for the book, and um, it was my first food styling job. It was in Lee Schrager's apartment in the Ansonia, yeah. and it was Spike Mendelson's toasted marshmallow milkshake from Top Chef. 
and the recipe said, you know, lay, you know, lay the marshmallows out on a foil lined sheet and put them under a low broiler for two minutes. So I put them in, I was checking them and all of a sudden Lee's tiny (laughs) apartment in the Ansonia filled with smoke. (laughs) This is the first time I've ever met this man. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I said to my, my boss, Lori, I was like, Lori, there's a problem. There's a problem. And she's like, get the kosher salt. You know, yeah. so, and we were, the funny thing is like, he was about as far away as you are from me. And we were trying to hide it from him in some weird way. Like we thought maybe yeah. we could just sort of staunch the problem. But yeah. the, the point is that the recipe said broil for two minutes right, on a low right. broiler, yeah. but the broiling element was closer to the pan than I anticipated. So you yeah. really have to tell people, you know, check frequently yeah. until it turns brown, whatever, you know, stuff and like that. And it's also why it's important to have a cross tester. Like, you know, I can test the recipes myself. I can write the recipes and edit them and work with the chef to make them what they are. But you still really want to have a third pair yeah. of eyes yeah. and hands in those recipes to cross test. Third, even maybe fourth. Totally, fifth. yeah. Because when you do recipes, I know I've been involved in this where I get recipes to test from people who are writing recipes or testing recipes. Do you send it out to friends and family as well? It depends. depends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. Depends the what the budget the is. Budget, the budget, the time frame. Yeah. yeah. There's professional recipe testers who can blow through 10 recipes in a day. Yeah. Um, Which or, we've both done before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, you know, or you can send to friends and, and friends of friends and whoever's willing. But, you know, you really want someone to look at it. What I always say is with a professional recipe tester, you kind of get that. So if something goes wrong, how yeah. do you troubleshoot it? How do you yeah. fix it? Not just, oh, this went so wrong. And, yeah. you know, right. I mean, what kind of notes, scripts, information do you look back, uh, look for back uh, on, you know, like it went wrong and I would have done this and. Um, suggestions how to fix it um, and a lot of times we I think we both take liberties because of where we are and what we do like I'll send it back to, and I'll say this didn't work I just changed it to this way to work properly you know like yeah. so but um, but also sometimes like what might not work to me could be completely successful to the chef. So I always try to, you know, bring it back to them and say, so the tester said, or so I, so was it really supposed to be this thick or this? Mm -hmm. I was working on some, uh, some chili recipes for an upcoming fine cooking story and came across this. Whereas I I wasn't sure if it was right. And so just because I'm not from the, you know, region, the the state where the chef is from and they do things differently Mm -hmm. and, you know, so many different interpretations of a dish. um, It's really important to go back and make sure because they could be like, yeah, that's totally how I want right. it. Whereas you know. I'd be like, well, that's, you know, doesn't work for me, but it works for him and that's what he wants and that's what other people want. So, you know, you kind of yeah. also have to... You have to remove your ego. Yeah, yeah. Always. Do you have to remove theirs? <laughs> no, you no. have to protect theirs at all costs. Yeah. <laughs> I would yeah. say. Because I mean, how, how often have you found yourself actually changing a recipe and then the chef uh, imploring that rather than their old one? It's a give and take. I mean, I think yeah. their word is the la- if, as long as you know. I think they're usually very. Well, um, are pretty happy. Yeah, to, they're very to find out when something doesn't work. Yeah, it's, it's embarrassing for yeah. them. They don't yeah. want. Out. They don't want. The, the last thing they want is for someone to come up to them at an event and say, I, I, I made this from your book and it, it didn't, didn't work. work. So right, I think right. if, when it's technique-based, they're always receptive to the changes. And when it's a, a matter of style or taste, you really do have to divert to them because you have to realize in the end, this is their book and mm-hmm. you're the messenger and you're working with them and but for them right, ultimately right. you know so that's yeah it's a balance it's, yeah. a, <laughs> it's and, a tightrope and future projects you're working on i know raquel you're working with the lovely matthew weingarten yeah i'm working with matt weingarten on a great um foraging and preserving and curing book that's going to come out in 2013 the future, um, yeah the future. story uh, publishing it's going to be really different 
yeah. on what's out there and yeah. really fun. It's exa- really cool. Uh, we actually got to collaborate uh, a few years back on an edible Brooklyn Manhattan story uh, with Matthews foraging yeah. Yeah. for ginkgo berries. Yeah, mm, um, I remember that. Story. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was it was excellent. Um, I almost got beat up by a band of Chinese women who were <laughs> foraging for those berries. Yeah, yeah, the same yeah, ones. yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, he was out there with his daughter, and it just was his sense of what's you know uh, out there in the natural world. Mm-hmm. And by natural, I don't mean just farms and like what's actually. Oh yeah. In the urban environment, that he finds chamomile yeah. in sidewalk cracks, and you know, wild growing blackberries and mulberry trees, and I mean, you know, working on this book with them, we'll talk about, I don't know, quince, and say, like, oh yeah, there's that quince tree on Atlantic <laughs> Avenue, and it's like, what? Yeah. Really? Yeah, there is. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I feel like there should be this underground trade of information as such, because I mean, I know where a whole bunch of overlying fig trees are in Bensonhurst that go yeah. across property lines and you're allowed to pick them. Mm. Um, Maybe you don't want to tell. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> I, get, I get a handful a year, I make my jam and that's mm. about it. But, uh, no, it's fascinating that there is food all around yeah. us. And it's just yeah. a matter of having someone there that has that vision to interpret it. And yeah. mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a cool one. And uh, Dino, what are you working on right now? Um, I'm working on a couple of proposals with chefs for books. Um, I just finished developing 70 recipes for another health-related cookbook all in about a month. Yeah. (laughs) So it was an intense uh, period of cooking. And then working on several uh, food styling jobs um, and uh, magazine pieces. Yeah. So, So, I mean, do you find finding these humanistic single-subject chefs Mm -hmm. to work with Mm -hmm. exciting, uh, exhausting, um, otherwise? No, not exhausting. No, I think it's always, sometimes it can be a challenge in the beginning to figure it out. What's the book going to be? What's their voice? What's their food? But once you do, it just kind of rolls right off. You know, just it, it's so easy to yeah. get I think on the once page. they've bought in, then you yeah. feel... There's a flow. You, and you feel emboldened and f- freed up to, to, to then bring your own voice back into it. Because there is... There's a, the reason it worked well is because you knew how to convey what they were saying, but then you allow your creativity to come back into it mm-hmm. and you move forward with it. Yeah. So I just recently did like a sample chapter for a book and, you know, you hit the send button and you're just waiting for this, this person <laughs> who, you know, who you really don't know that well to come back and tell you whether you have properly, you know, expressed their viewpoint. And it's a, it's a quite an anxious moment when you're waiting. And in this case, it it seemed to have worked out well and I was so relieved, but it could have easily gone the other way. Well, I mean, have there been those situations where there wasn't the rapport and you said, I have to back away from this because this isn't going to be the best project for the both of us. Um, I don't think I've ever backed away from something after signing on, but there's definitely been instances. I mean, I've written, you know, I think 13 books now. I mean, there've been instances where, um, you know, editor might want something the chef wants something else and you're kind of caught in the middle and trying to make everyone happy and um it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier just passion and knowing what you want to say and everyone being on board with that um and that makes it for the best book I yeah think. yeah so there is really no path to follow it's just wait for a blackout or <laughs> an, <laughs> uh, an odd introduction by someone's twin and <laughs> i think just you know if, if you're interested in in doing this keep cooking um offer a, to do you know to do jobs for free if yeah you, if you can find yeah. i mean there's so many food events mm-hmm. and and television shows and things going on and there you know there are potentially people that you could connect with just if you really show your passion 
offer to maybe test a recipe or assist them or do mm-hmm. something and just see, you know, a lot of things do come out of just sort of chance encounters, yeah. you know. But I, and I think, you know, also focusing on your writing, you know, if you're interested in doing this, it's really important as well because yeah. it's not enough to just be able to cook. The writing, the, the writing piece is what really brings it all together. I right. Think. I mean, a good way to test the waters is if there's a chef that you really admire out there and um, you think you'd like to have a partnership with them or collaborate on a, a book or even an article is to approach them and, and say, hey, you know, I'd really like, love to work on something mm-hmm. with you and start small. Maybe pitch an article to... Um, I don't know. I don't really pitch that much anymore. Do you? It's like uh, yeah. a blog or a magazine uh-huh. yeah. or um, oh. just pitch something. You know, even if it doesn't pick, get picked up by someone, at least you develop that relationship yeah. and you kind of get to know each other and, mm-hmm. and it makes it easier to work on the cookbook proposal and then the cookbook, hopefully, if it sells. Yeah. And I still, you know, I still think that chefs are really receptive and open to people who they see love food and cooking and if you offer it's the same way that you would offer to go work in a kitchen for free which I did for a year while I was still working at the magazine you know twice a week I went at five and worked till midnight yeah you know if you show your you know your commitment to it I think people respond and are willing to maybe give you a chance you know and chefs likewise if you're looking for Writers, recipe testers, mm. check out adinasussman.com, raquelpazel.com. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. um, thank you so much. Thank uh, you. It's been not only uh, informative, but you know, inspiring to see that there isn't a protocol, that yeah. y- you make it happen because you want it to happen. Definitely. Um, so, Raquel Pazell, uh, Adina Sussman, thank you. You've been listening thank you, Michael. to thank the food scene on heritageradionetwork.com. Shout out to Sam Edwards and Surrey Farms for sponsoring. Jack Inslee for just doing everything as always (laughs) hope to have you here next tuesday at 3 p.m cheers thanks for listening to this program on the heritage radio network you can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows you can also podcast all of our programs on itunes by searching heritage radio network in the itunes store You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. The new Whole Foods Market in Fairfield, Connecticut, uh, is going to be generating their own clean power on site with a Pure Cell, that's a registered trademark, System Model 400 from UTC Power. I'm going to quote now from Tristam Coffin, the Green Mission Specialist for Whole Foods Markets, Northeast Region. In connection to our company's green mission, we are very proud to be reducing our carbon footprint while producing clean energy in our new Fairfield, Connecticut location. UTC Power has been a great local partner in implementing our fuel cell to help us reduce our environmental impact in the Fairfield community. By generating most of its power on site with the fuel cell, the Whole Foods Market in Fairfield will prevent the release of more than 847 metric tons of carbon dioxide annually, the equivalent of planting more than 85 acres of trees. The reductions in nitrogen oxide emissions compared to a conventional power plant are equal to the environmental benefit of removing more than 100 cars from the road. In addition to the reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, the Pure Cell system will allow Whole Foods Market to save nearly 3.5 million gallons of water annually. 
Unlike central generation and other fuel cell technologies, the pure cell system is designed to operate in water balance so there is no consumption or discharge of water during its operation. That's an awesome story. Kudos to Whole Foods. Don't you love that? This has been Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. Did you know we have a beer show? Check out a small clip from Beer Sessions Radio. All right, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43, and I'm here with Ray Dieter from the DBA Bars. Hey, Jim. Ray, this is a fun show. We're drinking Belgian beer. We're drinking Ictagum. Hanging out with the guys from the 124 Rabbit Club. we got uh, Don and Wendy from Van Berg and the Wolf. Well, let's go back a little bit to, to kind of build your pedigree. So the two of, the, two of your top brands that we love and that you have now, Scaldis and Saison DuPont. Yeah, exactly. Tell us uh, how you met those guys, how you started working with them. Well, Saison DuPont was really... that. Was if you want to hear more, head over to HeritageRadioNetwork.com where new episodes of Beer Sessions are posted every week in our archive. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. The following is a message from HeritageFoodsUSA.com. The difference between wild Alaskan salmon and farmed Atlantic salmon is just as great as the differences between commodity pork and heritage breed pork. Huge! HeritageFoodsUSA.com is lining up a major social buy of sustainably harvested salmon in July and offering it at a phenomenal price to consumers. Check out HeritageFoodsUSA.com for more details on how to get in on this opportunity. Experience salmon the way it should be. following is a public service announcement from Just Food. Help bring live chickens into food challenge communities through your donations to the Just Food City Chicken Project 2011. The City Chicken Project would not be possible without the volunteer hours, donations large and small, and the vibrant energy and ideas of the communities we work with. Just Food is a nonprofit organization that connects New York City communities and local and urban farmers with the resources and support they need to make fresh, locally grown food accessible to all. To donate, search on kickstarter.com for Just Food and find their City Chicken Project. For more information on Just Food, visit justfood.org or call 212-645-9880. That's 212-645-9880. Let's keep making New York City a better place to live and eat. 